Welcome to episode 10 of the Rig Podcast. This is the second half of former Amherst Drug Lab Supervisor Jim Hanschitz train wreck interview with Massachusetts Attorney General's office. Among many other shocking admissions, Hanchett again tells investigators that he manufactured heroin in the Amherst lab and the interview was mysteriously edited when Hanchett discussed Farrakh's drug use at the lab. This one needs to be heard to be believed. Enjoy. Former Amherst Lab Supervisor James Hanchett back in 2015. Um, and so we, when we last left off with the interviews, he, Hanchett admitted to getting his lab, getting uh, their standards from burned down pharmacies. And uh, the last thing he did was to admit that he manufactured heroin in the Amherst lab. I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to, uh, we were talking before the recording started, but I, I just wanted the listeners to realize it's not just, you know, the three or four of us saying that that sounds crazy, uh, the things that Hanchett was doing. Um, I pulled up an old article from last year. Um, it was a, a civil suit where Hanchett was being sued um, by one of the uh, individuals whose samples were processed at the lab. And I, I thought it was poignant. Um, just uh, I'll read the quote. In the first civil lawsuit arising from the Amherst Drug Lab scandal, the First Circuit questioned the liability lab supervisor might owe for letting chemist Sonia Ferrix abuses go on so long. The judges repeatedly returned to one incident in which the supervisor, James Hanchett, discovered a suspicious beaker at Ferrick's workstation, but concluded that another chemist must have brought her daughter to work and that the daughter had used the beaker for a science experiment. And then, quote, I'm baffled by that, said U.S. Circuit Judge David Barron. I just find that shocking. And he continues, uh, are children routinely allowed inside state drug labs? Uh, asked the incredulous-sounding U.S. Circuit Judge Sandra Lynch. So this is referring to an incident where Farrick had um, made her own crack cocaine in the lab and had forgotten to clean out uh, one of the beakers that she used. She then just suggested to Anchet after he found it that Rebecca Ponce uh, might have brought in her daughter and they may have had a little science experiment. And then he's like, that's it. Okay, uh, fine. That's a perfectly good explanation. <laughs> So, uh, in the back of your mind, as you listen to, uh, the rest of his, his, uh, interview with the state police, that that is, I mean, thinking that his daughter's coming in and playing around with cocaine in the state lab. And do we, uh, Chris, do we know when that happened? Uh, what year? Oh, the underlying incident. I think this yeah. was shortly before Ferrick was arrested. So I think it was around Christmas time, twenty. 12, maybe a little bit earlier, a little bit afterward. So, okay. uh, so you know, investigation Christmas, I mean. So, yeah, it, so it suggests not only a certain profound level of gullibility of a lab supervisor, but also suggests that contrary to uh, any tightrope that Hanchet might, might have wanted to walk about whether he knew there were problems with Farrakh or he didn't know, the answer is he didn't know, he didn't have any uh, enough concerns to even ask any follow-up questions about that uh, unbelievable story as late as December. Um, so basically, this if she hadn't done whatever the mess-up was that she did that got her uh, caught, 
she could have continued on for you know months or even years. Right. And to circle back onto, you know, is it us that just cares about this stuff or, you know, is it actually important? Uh, the attorney general's office did an entire investigation on all this. That's where all this is based off of. So the state and the attorney general's office thought it was very important how Hanchett was making standards important enough to, you know, do hours of interviews with people that still work at the state police lab and open up an investigation on it. So to me, that is, they think it is important. What, um, what's unfortunate is that either people don't understand or that, you know, people just kind of brush it aside and say, Oh, well, but, uh, I think what, what we're about to listen to, um, from Hanchett, especially when it comes to his manufacture of secondary standards, is very, very important. And it just, has far-reaching ramifications back just, decades. Just to pause for two seconds, you know, uh, they certainly looked into this is issue. What's baffling is more of it doesn't come out in the official report. Right. So there was um, a lengthy report written by um, Assistant Attorney General Caldwell that describes a lot of these problems, but it, it's odd, for instance, that the report says Sharon Salem told them that only Hanchett was manufacturing his own standards when there are these audio files where she talks about making her own standards from vials that they took out of the trash. So it's entirely unclear to me how that did not make its way into the report. Um, but uh, anyway... Or why it never caused the OIG to revisit any of their um, striking findings about uh, there only being one fat actor uh, in one lab. Correct. All right. So let's play uh, the next clip of Han of Hanchett's interview with the Attorney General's office. It's, um, I believe it's about standards. All right. Here we go. And now, in terms so you, is it fair that the standard was probably one of the most expensive things to purchase? And paying, yes, and paying paperwork was. Okay. Now you, uh, you know, let me just ask a quick question on the paperwork. You had a DEA license, correct? And you were the individual who had their name on the DEA license, right, for the correct. entire laboratory, correct? So you dealt with that paperwork process, right? But and, not, not that much. Because it was, you know, Alan was gone away maybe three or four years before the state police took over. And then I was removed from the picture. Everything would be ordered through. Well, no, I did order a few things, but most of it was. Yeah, I did. I ordered about maybe 10 drugs, but I was using the state police procedure and all the hell was done. Not so much the DPH procedure. No, because it wasn't necessary. No, right. Um, now, give us an example. A cocaine standard. A regular co cocaine standard, What? how much would you order and what was the cost? Oh, I think it was probably around $100, maybe anywhere between 100 and 500 Some things you can only get maybe 10 milligrams. Some things maybe you get, you know, 100 milligrams. You know, some things you could probably maybe up to 500 milligrams. It depends what it was. Stuff like oxycodone, it was probably only 100 milligrams you could get. What about, say, heroin? That was another one. Maybe you came in like 10 milligram vials. That's about all you could get. How about uh, methamphetamine? Methamphetamine, the same thing. You get a small bottle, maybe 10, maybe anything that was, you know, highly controlled. They, it seems like they were more stingy with getting it. And 
so you don't have to order four or five bottles, and that was expensive. And, and heroin, especially heroin, it, it was only made wasn't made available all the time. So you know, the time you needed it, you might not have it. So that's yeah. why we relied on you know secondary standards. Okay. So when you say they weren't available, was it because you had already gone through the inventory, or, or, or they didn't have them? To get our supplier, under state purchasing, you only go through certain companies. It's a real pain. A lot of the companies, you know, that we could order it from, we couldn't order. We'd have to get it from a secondary company and pay the premium. <laughs> you know, which was, you know, not my idea of good purchasing, but that's theirs. And you get through them, but some companies wouldn't deal with them. Sigma Chemical wouldn't deal with the, the company we dealt with. And we didn't have a purchasing agreement with Sigma, so we couldn't get anything Sigma had. So we had to go to other sources. And in terms of who, who beyond you at the lab knew about that? Well, I think everybody, you know, just me in my lab. But I mean, down in Boston, I think Chuck and I had the same problem. And I don't think Chuck ordered this, the uh, supplies. It was probably mostly handled by Peter Piro. Peter Piro? And who was Peter? He was the head of the mass spec section at the, at the time I was. So he he ran all the chemists who were using the mass spec, right. essentially the confirmatory tests. Right. And how how many did you say? You say only a couple worked under Peter. Uh, they end up rotating. Everybody had at one time to rotate under Peter, just to get the uh, use of the mass spec. But after Melendez Diaz, that ended up everybody had to do their own. Now, you said that uh, Charles Fleming probably had the same problems that right. you had in terms of the standards. Did you ever have a conversation uh, or an email exchange with him just about that? No, I can't recall. We just took that as just purchasing problem and, and lack of funding. I just didn't really pursue it. Okay, and it's fair to say that because you and uh, Mr. Salemi know about it, Julianne Nassif know about it. I'm assuming she did. I mean... I mean, you gotta understand. We there was three labs in the state at one time, and we would exchange drugs with each other. And state police came up to us and got some psilocybin one time because then, then another thing you only get ten milligrams of. So we share drugs. They had a license. We had a license. It was totally, totally done. <laughs> so, like a few real quick thoughts. So I, I forget exactly how long he was the supervisor of the Amherst lab. It was always to like uh, 13 or 12. Yeah, so he, he says he ordered about 10 standards that entire time, <laughs> which is indicative of a problem. It was a pain. There was a lot of paperwork. It was a lot of paperwork. Honestly, I think that's the real problem. He just didn't want to go through the effort if he could just make a standard. Clearly, he had like an idea because they did this all along. And it's like, why would I waste a hun hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars on these standards when I can just make them here? That I think we debunked that whole money issue uh, last time because like uh, even assuming, so a lot of the standards were around $100 or less than $100. So even if you were assuming that the heroin standard was like $160 per vial, even assuming you used the entire vial for one GCMS run, you know, because they were not using blanks at that lab, you could use the whole 100 vial carousel in the GCMS machine. So, you know, divided by 100 or uh, slightly less than 100, it's, it's around a buck 60 per criminal case. So. <laughs> 
Dude, and what was the budget that year? Like, think about the cost of throwing out all these criminal cases and investigating all this shit. It, it, it's mind-boggling. And then, uh, you know, the, the final thought that I had about that clip is um, he's sort of suggesting that the Hinton Lab likely had the same problems. And mm-hmm. so the question is, where was the Attorney General's follow-up? Right. So, so they, enter, they, they hear from Sharon Salem. She thinks they're doing it over there. Uh, they hear from Hanship that thinks they probably have the same problems. They interviewed uh, Alan Stevenson. He said they were doing it when he was the supervisor and they were cutting corners. Uh, and then, as I said this before, they just interview Annie Duke and she says we didn't do it. And then that's what they put in their report. But do you really think that they just interviewed Annie Dukin? Well, I mean, I, I know that they didn't actually go through documents because I uh, sent several to Caldwell that he had never seen before. And he essentially said my job was to look at Amherst. So he just heard all of this. And also he, uh, Hanchett later in here, uh, implicates the state police. And I believe Salen did as well, right? Saying that the state police was doing the same thing for years until I think they just stopped before these people. But again, they never, I mean, according to the attorney general's office, FOIA responses, there's no other interviews other than the ones we're going to play on the podcast. This is it. And and he said that Hanchett ordered standards from and from uh, for Hinton, or he thought that that was the process that uh, Pira did that. Yeah, so Salemi is the supervisor over Hinton. Peter Pira is the head of the um, mass spec room. Um, anyway, right. On. So let's, yeah, let's move on. Okay, next clip. Did you ever discuss with Julianne Nassif that you were making standards? I only had made the standards was when I first started because we just couldn't get them. That was probably in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And did she? She wasn't in charge then. Okay. But did the did the people, did anybody know what Julianne Nassif or anyone know that standards were being made at the lab? And did, was that ever addressed? No, probably not. That was, a lot of the, uh, the older guys, the older chemists where I started with, they went to the DA school. And at the time, that's what the protocol was. Even the, the manual they gave you showed you how to make the drugs to use for your standard because a lot of this stuff wasn't available. I mean, really, when I started, it wasn't the heroin and coke. It wasn't. It was marijuana and, and a lot of pills. There wasn't all, all that much, you know, you know Springfield maybe, all you know, but... Okay. Um, now, you say for, for a cocaine or heroin standard, how quickly would you go through those and so what was the frequency that you had to either order more or create one i would make a i would usually make maybe a, at least the minimum i would make be 10 mls and you only need a very small amount for a mass spec so it would probably be every i'd say three to six months i'd make a, a heroin and, and coke sand i was combining them both two together and that would be good for maybe three to six months depending on how much it was used okay explain Hmm. All right. Um, so I, he's pretty certain that uh, Nasif knew, or Nasif, whatever, knew that he was doing that, and she's and the other lab was doing it. So I don't, it, as the supervisor, I, there's no way that. I mean, to me, it's 
it's crazy that they didn't interview uh, Julie Nasif or Linda Hahn as well. As part of the, the AG investigation. Yeah. How did they not? Like, clearly they're... Anyways. That would be going up the chain of command, meaning yeah. you don't stop an investigation at, 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 uh, at the level that you find. You know, it's like if you're um, looking for a rotted uh, portion of a house. You don't find the rod of wood and say, oh, that's the extent of it. I'm going to stop right here. You usually keep going until you find something, a clean surface. Right. Uh, and so if you find that there's a, a, a lab supervisor who's uh, um, uh, obliterating uh, uh, what people thought were the rules, uh, I think it's incumbent on you to go up the next level and, and ask, I mean, do I really have to say what the question would be? Did you know? Right. That's the, that, that's the question. And then I guess the follow up is, and when did you know? Right. Um, and maybe did you authorize it? But you know, that, that, that would take about five minutes to ask those questions. Was so it, if, did you tell them to do it? Did right. you keep doing it because we didn't have the money? <laughs> um, so the next, so keep in mind before this next clip, keep in mind that last time when the attorney general's office interviewed Sharon Salem, that they were very adamant about not, or like, it seemed like taking from submitted samples was a big deal to make standards. And uh, Salem was adamant that she only took from the trash, that she only made her trash standards and that um, no one like was to in that she didn't know if Jim Hanshaw was taking from submitted samples. So uh, next clip. All right, here we go. Thank you. Okay, explain the process on how you would make a standard. If I had there the original stuff, I would use that. If not, I would take a, a sample that we had, had received. Back when we first started doing the trafficking cases, we used to do an IR on all of them, as well as a mass spec. The IR required more samples, so we'd have maybe 100 milligrams of coke or 100 milligrams of heroin. Say from maybe a thousand packets, you'd take a couple milligrams from each packet, mix it together. Anything that was left over from the IR that was once proved to be heroin, that would be used as the next standard. Okay, can, so can you explain that a little bit more? I, I, I think I understand the process, but... Consider a secondary standard. Okay, so you would take, there would be a sample submitted by a very, a, any law enforcement yeah. agency, and it, it would be just a large sample? Usually, yeah, very large. Okay, now, you say you used to do an IR. What is an IR? Infrared spectroscopy. And can you explain what that machine is or what it just it, it gives a, uh, uh, the absorption bands of, of the uh, chemical present. And those absorption bands are uh, indicative of what the sample is. And that, was, that would be, fair to say, a pretty quick test? Uh, no, you had to clean it up pretty good. When you say clean it up, what do you mean by that? Get rid of impurities. Especially ah. heroin, you'd have to do extractions or... Or column chrome. We used to do column chromatography, clean it up that way. Okay. Just to get pure heroin. Explain that. Well, heroin would be cut with quinine, could be cut with caffeine, could be cut with anything else, always cut with sugars. You know, you know, simple sugars, lactose or something. And you have to get rid of all that stuff because you make an IR, it has to be pure, it won't work. And what was the purpose again of doing the IR? Is that a preliminary test in the whole process? Or? That was just used just for, uh, that's all they used at the state police for a long time, but no, that was just used for, you know, trafficking samples, just to have more, you know, proof other than just the mass spec. When I started, we had the IRs on everything. 
And then gradually when the mass spec came about, we uh, shifted to that and we used the IR for backup. Or, and when was that? Probably got our first mass spec in 88, maybe, 90, right around there. So we learned, relied on IRs exclusively to that point. Okay, so so stepping back, so a sample would come in, mm -hmm. you would do an IR on it? Yep. Okay, and that was to essentially prove what it was. Prove yeah. what it was. You clean it up first. Oh, you clean it up. Well, so we do a color crystal test too. You knew what it was, and basically you can tell Aaron how it's packaged differently than how Coke was packaged. So you basically knew what it was. Okay. Do a quick color test to confirm it. Don't waste your time if it's not heroin. If you don't get the positive result, you get the positive result, then you go on and make an extraction, purify it to the IR. Okay. And then what was the next step? After you did the IR, you cleaned up the substance, so you got the pure, yeah. say, heroin. That's, if it, no, like I said, if it, if it was a large batch, I would save a, a portion of that to make the next standard. Okay. And, that's, and when that's, you say you saved a portion, what would you do with it? I put it in a vial, or, you know, or a, or a beaker, label it, date it, and you know, put it with the drugs. Okay. And how would you dissolve it? Yeah, you dissolve it with methanol. With methanol? Yeah. Usually. Now, um, is it, it's, it's fair to say that, uh, to, to make a stock standard, you, you need more of that sample, correct? Yeah, one milligram per ml is what we tried for. Okay. And if you say we're well, gonna maybe make a liter, you ever make like a no, liter? No, never. So how how what would be the largest stock standard that you would? Twenty five at the most. Okay. Probably more like ten is more routinely. Okay, because it doesn't last that long either. You break down fast, especially on methanol. Now, so you had two storage areas in the lab, correct? For these standards. Three. No, the standards were stored in the uh, great cabinet, and our samples were stored in the uh, lockup. You had a refrigerator at the lab. Oh, yes, there was, there was drugs, so you're right. There was drugs in there, too. Okay. And you stored samples in that, or standards, excuse me, in that refrigerator right. also. And that's because maybe they would, like you said, break right. down, yes. or they more volatile than others. Right. And you you put some of those standards that you created yep. in that. Yes, you store them in there. Yeah. I mean, this sounds slightly better than what Sharon Salem was saying she was doing, but it's still slightly unclear to me exactly what he's saying. Um, so at one point he talks about taking drug from, um, you know, if, if there was a, a large trafficking case with a whole bunch of packets, take some from different packets. So it's unclear to me, uh, you know, if he's sequestering like 30 more of the packets from the same evidence sample and then using them later on after he's confirmed that part of it was uh, heroin. Um, a lot of unanswered questions as to uh, what they were doing in this process. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm um, amazed that he says at the end, but you know, it doesn't last very long, um, and uh, and it sort of segues into the point that this is not even a secondary standard. I mean, let's reject okay. that. A, a, a secondary standard is, is a term of art in, in, in the field of chemistry for when you've taken a, 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 a primary standard and from that you're deriving a standard. And, and the primary standard is purchased, purified product that's certified. Right. And so for, uh, for some reasons, you may 
uh, uh, need to, 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 to sort of borrow from or copy from something. Um, but, but that's, you're, you're always starting with a certified um, pharmaceutical grade primary standard, uh, which is stability tested and has an expiration date. That's right. why it's a primary standard. So this is a tertiary standard, if there's such a thing, um, where you assume that the thing that you got off the street is the drug. And, and putting aside this, the problems with that assumption, um, he then, quote, cleans it up. Right. There's, an, there's an unverifiable, unregulated process, um, which is also fascinating. And I think what we're hearing is that this was done since the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it was done as out of necessity before 88 when they got the mass spec. And then I guess it was continued in the spirit of tradition um, for, for decades after. Um, and, and, and you're right, Chris, it's not clear whether what's being saved is the powder, the street powder, or what's being saved is the, uh, vial of, uh, uh, with, uh, with, um, uh, the methanol solution. Um, either way, I think it's completely problematic. And um, even if you wanted to do this, you would have to have an original primary to compare it to. And he, you know, he's saying in this interview that they did, but when you look at their standard logbook, it doesn't appear that they actually had one, right? So even if you're using this IR uh, in order to compare, you know, something that came off the street and and, and the lab is then going to say that this is heroin, you still want to, at the same time, run the IR against a known quantity of heroin. It seems like they didn't have that. So they right. just had generations of these tertiary standards. Right. It's a photocopy of a photocopy. And then to verify it, you're comparing your second photocopy against what? The first photocopy? I mean, neither of those are, are going to be the original. Right. It's, uh, and dude, there's no expiration date on any of these. So they're winging it. They don't right. know. I like how he says it lasts three to six months. Yeah, uh, like, is there's it? no certification saying, "Hey, this is this is still good." He's just running jabroni yeah. test. It's like if someone told you this milk will be good for three to six months, uh, would you like to have a sip? <laughs> You'd say, "Well, wh where are we in that process?" Uh, I, I'd like to know. <laughs> um, and anyone's freedom depends on it. One of the you know two chemists in the lab, other than Jim, that they're relying on uh, to catch you know when something goes bad is Sonia Farrakh. Right, who's constantly high? So, <laughs> on LSD. Right. All right, next clip, Rand. All right, going to the next clip, right? It's more on the breakdown. So, when you were making these standards, how how much would you make for the storage to, to be used by the other chemists? Probably ten, just ten mils. That's ninety-nine percent of the time was ten mils. There's no reason to make any more. So, like I said, if you made twenty-five, which maybe I did, I don't remember, but ten was the normal. It just broke down too fast. It started turning dark, and you get breakdown peaks. Of the heroin turns into uh, a monoacetyl breakdown product. Okay, and you would what? It would be one. You're saying it's one milligram, one milligram per ml per ml. So there'd be ten milligrams in there. And but sometimes you would make twenty-five. Very rarely, because it doesn't last. Okay. And how frequently, how, how soon do you go through this? It's, it depends. It usually breaks down before we finish using it. Three to six months depends on the condition. But a lot of times it was left out on the bench too. I mean, it's supposed to be kept in the refrigerator, but a lot of times when people would go use it, they'd leave it out on the bench. And so 
you know, get warmer and it would break down faster. So that sounds good. <laughs> again, it gets back to having no written protocols and procedures. We're sort of just winging it. You can't really reliably say when the stuff that you made up is expiring. Um, but, uh, you know, also another issue is the stuff is just sitting around in, in you know, unlocked drawers, uh, random cabinets. Um, you know, that violates some federal regulations, and I read them all before. But um, for certain schedules of drugs, you're supposed to have, um, you know, increasing amounts of security. And right. so keeping uh, heroin in an unlocked refrigerator or, like, sitting on a lab desk is not okay. Well, and, and observation and then question. Uh, the observation is he said that it broke down while we were using it. And I think he said it sometimes on the bench, meaning that it, they were in use, right? So that's like I drink milk until it spoils, and sometimes it spoils while I'm drinking it. I mean, that's a real problem um, uh, for, for whoever's sample is being tested with the broken down sample. So they're not, they're not throwing it out prophylactically before it breaks down. They're waiting for it to break down, discover it, and then what? Just pretend that everything was fine up until that point. Um, but if, if it breaks down three to six months, Chris, how does that um, uh, 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 at all uh, smile favorably on the um, Sharon uh, system of, uh, uh, of, of trash picking? Does it when you go to the trash and take it out? Does did you just revive the three month expiry? Expiry? Yeah. <laughs> New lease on life. Yeah. It does. It's like hitting the reset button in a video game. That's right. Well, I right. Think the only thing I might add is it seemed like some of the justices on the SJC were concerned about this issue and. Um, lab practices in general. And they asked some pointed questions during CPCS versus AG about it. Um, Justice Gaziano in particular uh, had trouble with the notion um, that there were no written protocols and procedures or not apparently following industry standards. And somehow Judge Kerry concluded that um, everything that chemists other than Farrick was working on was fine, um, and they didn't have the benefit of, of these audio recordings. So even with the limited amount of information that they had, they were still highly skeptical. And it, how did they not have these audio recordings? That's the question. How were these not made available? It's a joke. So, uh, next clip, Rand. All right, next clip coming in. This is where the state police get... Um, making these secondary standards, you said they, they, were, they were essentially coming in off the street. The right. drugs coming in off the street. Um, right. Did anyone at the lab other than yourself manufacture these secondary standards? No, not when I was in charge. Prior to that, I mean, probably Gerald Duguerre, he was he would do that too. And would you say, I know we had you talked about, you had mentioned it, like, you know, with Charles Salami, that this was just kind of what you did. Is that fair? I don't know. I don't know if I, it probably might not have been Charles. It might have been somebody else down there. We had a, we had a chemist from there. I came out a couple times and we, I made heroin for them too at one time. 
don't remember his name. Well, I, when I say that, you, I mean, it was just kind of an accepted thing at the last. Yeah. When you were in a pension, you were short on the standards. You couldn't get them for whatever reason. You would just, you would generate one. Yeah. But that was earlier. And later on, no, we didn't have that problem. Because then, I think, they, you know, more or less, because of the protocols, we were forced to... Uh, and that was when the state police took over. No, the state police still took care of their marijuana from their samples and reused them, so no, no, kid no, yourself. Oh, no, no, no. I, and, I, and I know you worked for the state police for a while, but when, um, after the lab shut down, but yeah. did, um, what I'm just trying to say is, uh, I guess it's fair to say that that stopped the manufacture of samples, standards stopped when the state police came in because they were an accredited laboratory. No, and that, no. Not that we still use the same same standards because at the t at the time when they took over, they were in the, in the process of becoming a I don't know the level different level of accreditation. It was for the whole lab, so they spent all their time getting everything up to snuff, and you know in their labs. Okay. And we were going to be a secondary. Once they were done with their uh, certification, they were going to come back to us, and we would have started from scratch. But we tried to uh, meet their standards, but again. We always had that, uh, you know, when Milligram and Co-Caroline standards would be used for all our aspects. Okay, so you were still using the standards that you had created at the time of the past statement. So, why does it seem like Jim Hanship is like the Oprah of heroin? And you get some heroin, and you get some heroin, and... <laughs> I gave it to my neighbor for helping me fix my mailbox. Yeah, anyone who walked in, I was like, hey, you want some heroin? <laughs> I can make it. Well, right. So you have now, he says, I took heroin to, to Jamaica Plain. Uh, and he had earlier said that the labs uh, shared uh, drugs. And I think he said the state police delivered his lab. Now, he doesn't put time on any of these things. No. So, um, uh, which is an interesting uh, failure uh, by the questioners to ask, you know, when, what are you talking about? When did this happen? And give me names, you know, give me dates. Um, but so they tried to instead uh, do it. Uh, this is a lawyer trick called uh, compartmentalizing um, or, or boxing in. And they tried to get an admission that, oh, but it stopped when the state police took over. Uh, and he didn't uh, comply with that uh, 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 um, gambit. Um, and so there's an, there's an issue there. What happened when the state police took over and said, stop doing this? And he kept doing it. Maybe said, stop doing it. My, my reading of the federal statutes, just to back up a second, I think they are able to transfer um, drug standards, um, you know, within DPA. I don't think that's necessarily illegal, but it, it, it is problematic, again, if he's not complying with the federal statutes when he's generating these drugs right. and eliminating them. So that's a more new the, the uh, heroin that he delivered to Jamaica Plain was heroin that he made. Right. Um, so, I mean, like, Corey Weather saying this is heroin that I cleaned up from something off the street, or is this something I chemically synthesized from morphine? Um, if it's well, the latter, definitely, yeah. definitely a problem. Well, it's still an issue for Jamaica Plain because when they get the vial that has uh, heroin in it, or what they're told is heroin. Uh, the first thing you want to know is: is this genuine heroin? Right. Where is your certificate? Uh, by the way, for our, our records, what's the expiration date? 
Yep. Um, and then what's he going to say? Uh, when it turns brown, turn it, throw it out. I mean, no, he'll lie and say this is chemically synthesized, and he'll say that there's a process around it. Like, like they all said on. I mean, we saw Annie Duke, and we have when we get to her, we can read right from the court transcript for common evidence for Commonwealth versus Scott. She said it right there. These are either purchased or manufactured to, you know, the highest degree of science. That she ref, she referred to the standards as the Mona Lisa of drugs. And then a couple other things. At the beginning of that audio segment, he said when he was the supervisor, he was the only one doing this. And, you know, coincidentally, that is the only thing that makes its way into the attorney general's report. So, like, one issue is, did he realize Sharon Salem was doing what she was doing for several years before she became the evidence officer? Uh, and then also, um, you know, why is it that the attorney general's office selectively picked this part of the story and did not disclose what Sharon Salem was doing. Right. Right. Let's go next one. We, let's, let's try to plow through these because there's a lot to go. All right, here we go. So, can tell us how frequently would you manufacture a standard for use in a lab? Coke and heroin? Yeah, three to six months. That's probably pretty much, that's about it. All the other standards. Heroin? Were, uh, there was a few we keep in vials, you know, one milligram vials, and as, as they were needed. But when the state police took over, I, I made all the, uh, the standards most of the time. Prior to that, anybody, you know, could have made the, the standards. We, we never, uh, kept everything. Everything was open in, in one lab. Well, hold on, pause it right there, and um, that answers your question, Elias. When the state police took over, only he would make the standards. Prior to that, anyone was making standards. Hmm. So, but okay. the state, if you ask the state police what happened, they said they stopped making standards altogether, correct? Yeah, I think Hanch may have even testified in the 2016 Kerry hearings that they stopped after the state police told them to stop. But this contradicts it, as does uh, the standard logbook. <laughs> right. Let's keep. Let's just roll through it. Uh, kept everything. Everything was open in, in one lab. Okay. We had a cabinet. We had a refrigerator. Standards were in there. So if you needed, say, a PCP standard, you go in there and take one milligram out, and make a oh, well, just a one milligram, you know, one milligram sample. And you didn't want to know nothing all. You didn't need it that much. You only needed it for one. Same with LSDs. You know, it's a one-shot deal. You get an LCD and we go once or twice a month, three times a month, we go bad. So you only make one milligram at a time. Yeah, so is there are certain things that you need that on hand? Yeah. Large amounts of cocaine? Not uh, large amounts. No, we never, never had. Some of the older chemicals we had large amounts of. <laughs> All right, but let's just keep rolling. Let's do the next one. All right, here we go. If you were to get the standards from from uh, pharmaceuticals, yep. uh, how long would they last? Would they have a longer shelf life for at all? Or yes. It, yeah, well, yeah, most of them probably indefinite until you open them. But some do require refrigeration, so it made it very tricky. To, we had two different locations to keep the standards. Would it be in a higher volume that you get these, especially, you know, COVID heroin? No, heroin always came to 10 milligram vials, very small. Okay. Cocaine, you probably could get more, but, you know, we didn't, like I said, right? You had a large, we always had plenty of trafficking of, of cocaine. And you left over, 
I would take, you know, I said 10 milligrams and use that for standard. That's what I use. Leftover is the evidence. <laughs> so, like, the, the weight of these drugs is very important as to, like, how much time is served. And I don't know, just walking with it after it's submitted, like, it, it's like they take the weight when it comes into the lab and then it's, like, fair game to just you know, tear apart and turn into standards and do this, this, and this. Like, say they want it re-weighed, re what happens, you know? Right. And then you're convicting people downstream by comparing their sample to this thing that, that was seized off the, you know, the, the street corner. Um, and, and, and the only way we have to verify that it was cocaine is because somebody said, oh, yeah, I, I made that a couple months ago. That was cocaine. I mean, that's not science. No. It sounds like they're a bunch of kids playing with Play-Doh. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It's just we get a, bunch, a shitload of Coke and, you know, we just throw it around the lab. We have Coke fights. Woo! You know, things go. Let's go. Next, <laughs> next, next clip? Yep. All right, here we go. Um, the methamphetamine standard. Um, is it fair that that lasts a pretty long time? Or not? Well, it's hard to say. I don't know. Like, long pause. It, it, yeah, I say month, maybe a month. Now, whatever about now, what I'm saying, if you got it from a pharmaceutical company and it was manufactured for you, and it's a, you know a, a very pure standard, uh, how long could it last for decades? If Probably ten, ten years, at least. That's if it was not open frequently, right? And you're only using a milligram at a time. And again, methamphetamine, we only used, you probably only maybe had 10 samples a year, so you wouldn't use it a lot. So uh -huh. you probably only take one or two milligrams out a year. Well, Sonia used it a lot. Yeah, I mean, so why Caldwell was asking about this, uh, so it turns out he knows from Farrick's grand jury testimony that she would go into the refrigerator and take out from the, the methamphetamine standard uh, you know, small amounts every day and, and put it in her diet coke and and just go nuts for the rest of the day. But um, well, but that was and that was that infamous standard from the eighties, right? That's why he's asking how long it would last. Before that, I think Hanchett said uh, his predecessor. It was there like before he got. Someone says it's there before they got there. Um, so it might have been from the seventies, and so I think. Caldwell's trying to figure out what this chemical is that Farrick has been ingesting. Right. Uh, <laughs> so on the one hand, you know, I don't know if anyone's actually, you know, tried to figure this out, whether it broke down into amphetamine and something else, but um, he's, I think that's why he's asking these questions. Yep. Specifically about meth because of that bottle right. that was corroding in the fridge. Right. Seventies. All right, Rand, next one. All right. There we go. Okay. So now getting back, I asked you a previous question about the, the manufacturing samples. How, I guess I'll look directly, how frequently did you make them until the state police took over and you kind of went into this new protocol? Was well, it, basically I still, still made them right up to the end because we, they never fully you so know, implemented it, anything. Was it once a week, twice a week? Oh no, you know, once every three months. So it's once every three months. Yeah, yeah you know, or as needed. Sometimes you might need more, but it usually wasn't. It, it does break down. But you can tell once it starts getting the extra peaks on the mass spec, it's time. Just dump it down the drain, make some new stuff. And those would 
those you were making those from very large police submitted samples, right? Yeah, usually. So ninety percent of the time. Example. Thousand packets of heroin. You know. And I would take, you know, a couple milligrams out of each. You know, and maybe maybe do 10, 15 vials, and maybe do a color test or GC or mass spec on each vial. And anything left over, I'd have maybe 10, 15 milligrams left over, and I'd use that to make the uh, standard next time. So, I mean, there's testimony from people at the state police that they told him to stop doing that as soon as they found out about it. Yeah, on the stand. Like, they, I've read that testimony. Or he is very casually lying for no reason. Yeah, I'll see if I can find the transcript by the time we end this yeah. recording. It's, but it's the super, you know, who we're we're talking about, right? I think it's both Sullivan and and uh, what's your name, Brooks? Right, I'll look for Brooks. Okay. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, keep going. Next clip. Yep. There we go. Did um. And you were the only one who did this. And did you did you do all those big samples? Like the when the bigger uh, when you when you had to make a when a large police uh, piece of evidence would come in, uh, would, would you automatically just take it because it was maybe more complicated? Or well, I did that for years, but after the uh, after the new girls got you know more you know well better trained and stuff, they took over some of the larger you know cases too. Okay, and you say that you mean Rebecca and Sonny? Sonny, right? Um, did they ever, when they were doing those larger, you know, when they were, when they had a big police sample, so they you know they were trained and yeah. to, to handle companies, and would they come to you and say, Jim, this kilo of cocaine is very pure? Would you want to? No. No. So it was only with things that you yeah, I had worked on. Okay. So they, they had no point ever to say, this is an excellent candidate. No. No. Did they know how you made these? Yes. So you you did you ever like show them like this is how it's done that type of stuff? Well, I just basically just one milligram per ml. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Didn't have to. You know, they're all chemists. Didn't have to tell them. Hmm. So I did look up um, one of the transcripts. So um, let's see. On December eighth, two thousand sixteen, when Hanchett is being questioned on a, on page one fifty four. And it's sort of interesting. This is a sort of a lawyerly way of getting around the problem. Here's here's the quote. So he's being asked, uh, quote, you testified to Judge Kerry. Uh, Judge Kerry asked you a couple of questions when the Mass State Police took over your lab in July of 2012. They eventually found out that you were making standards at the lab, manufacturing standards, correct? Answer, yes. Question, and they told you to stop doing that, correct? Answer, yes. And then the next question is, and then when you they shut down the Amherst lab, you went to Sudbury and worked there for a while, correct? And then it goes on. So it, the, the listener gets the sense that he was told to stop and they stopped, but the, the lawyers in the room realize that the, the person who's posing these questions to him after he's asked, they told you to stop doing that, there's no follow-up, did you stop doing that? Right. Right. So, um, so yeah. they have of these recordings and interviews, and so that's their solution to this, you know, manifest problem 
that they just won't ask the right question so it doesn't get into evidence. Right. Right. And, and then there should have been uh, obviously an investigation of, of why he didn't stop, right? Right. And what the state police knew that he didn't stop. And then there's this odd fact that then he goes and works in Sudbury, uh, which, uh, given what we know now, would uh, would make me very nervous if, if I were in charge of that lab. Yeah. Especially when they their camera crews went into that lab after all this broke with Duke. Have you seen that video? Of the lab or the state, uh, state police lab? I haven't seen the state police one. I've seen um, video and pictures from Hinton, which is crazy because there are literally buckets of drugs everywhere. Um, and uh, I've seen pictures from Amherst. Yeah. So the state police lab, they had a camera crew come in there. And what I noticed, Ilias, and, you know, I mean, obviously I'm obsessed with hair. So I, I noticed that um, no one was wearing a hairnet in that lab with all of those and, you know, working in science for years and years and years, if you have a serious lab, the number one contaminant is what? Human beings. People. Yeah, you, you yourself. Really gown. DNA samples there at the, sub, at the yeah. police lab, right? Yep. They do DNA. And I think they do, do they do drug? They may have done it at the time. I know that they said, the whole reason for the video was that they transferred out of Hinton and into Sudbury and they were showing what a professional lab looks like and no one was wearing a hairnet. <laughs> but it's professional. Jim Hanchett works here. He's in the back making some heroin for uh, Jimmy for hitting a home run in the baseball game yesterday. And, and just, just really quickly. So, you know, when I found out about all of this, um, the, 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 I hadn't, thought about Hinton in a while, but it prompted me to go back and look to see what did they say in Hinton. And I think there were two references in the state police interviews of, uh, including Annie Dukin saying that one of her duties was, quote, making up standards. Yep. And that's that wouldn't be a duty, right? If you said, I'm testing seized samples, you wouldn't highlight one part of that and say that's a separate duty. Yep. So I think that they should, and, and maybe that's why they interviewed, re-interviewed Dukin, but I think there should have been, somebody else also talked about making up standards. Right. Oh, um, that should have, I think, prompted a, a wider investigation. For sure. All right, next one, Rand. All right, next clip coming up right now. When you, did you seal the bag immediately after you got your sample to run through the machines? or the? Yes. So, so is that what you... But trained, or is it just... Well, you don't want to cross-contaminate. You always have to do it that way. That bag is sealed as soon as you're done with that sample. Take the next sample out. You never want to have more than one sample running at a time. Is, do you and did Rebecca and Sonia do this? As far as I know, that's where we were trained. Uh, Sonia wasn't trained in our lab. She was trained in Boston, so she did things you know, slightly different. But when you say she did things slightly different, what, is, what does she do differently if you know? I don't know, her notes, I think, were different than ours. I think some of the testing, she, she relied more on color tests down there. We we got rid of the color tests. We relied more on the GC. So, but she more or less did what we required. I mean, you had to have a GC, you had to have a, you know, mass spec. And you, you checked on this, right? What she the mass, mass spec results, yes. We'd, uh, I forget what we checked on. I don't think I checked on hers. I think Sharon did. I checked on Becky's. It's just, 
We used to swap back and forth. And that printout list I told you we got from the mass spec, this is the sample number. You compared it with the results of this printout of this, you know, completed samples. And if it didn't drive, you know, somebody screwed up somewhere and you went back in. Because this was all, I, you know, I forgot to tell you that there was cards given, index cards of every sample. That's what recorded results on, the weight, the results, the date it was completed, and your initials. That's how it was transferred. Then you brought it back, you brought the samples back, you gave the card to the evidence officer, she would go in and print out a, uh, a certificate of analysis from, based on that card, the evidence card. And you also had bench notebooks, right? Yes. And you kept similar notes that were on that index card? In yes. Bench, the exactly. Right. Okay. All the weights, all the, all the results. And that was a requirement, obviously. Yes. Did, uh, you said Sonia did some things a little different. Did she weigh the drugs differently? I thought she did it by different, uh, you know, by just weighing the power, which I, I always did by difference, but, you know, it's not a big deal. It's whatever you want to do. I've seen in the state, when I worked on the state police lab, some did by difference, some just weighed the powder. Is that, is that, uh, does the standard working group today what recommend you do that a, you do it your way or something? Yeah, just the gas chromatograph. That's the uh, preliminary test, which I think is SWIFT drug compliant as long as you use the then GCMS in tandem afterwards. But it doesn't, um, I don't think it satisfies uh, Massachusetts law because they have to confirm it's that left or right-handed isomer, which for requires, cocaine. yeah, for cocaine, which requires a microcrystalline test. So that's certainly an issue. And then, but uh, also that's that, that's uh, I mean, you know, that segues back to the the purpose of the quote standalone GC over at, at Hinton. But uh, what were they testifying to at? Um, at Amherst, did they say we did color tests or did they say we just... They just said we would do the same thing that an accredited lab would do, and that was essentially it. <laughs> so they just straight up lied. They just straight up lied. All right. I also uh, just sent some pictures of the Hinton lab. I don't know if we can post these, but some of them are quite alarming. I'll, uh, I'll post like, them to Twitter. I will post yeah. them to Twitter and did... You know, Instagram only works on an app. It doesn't work. Well, I could do it with the pic. Yeah, I could do it to Instagram too. Yeah, you can do it on Instagram. Just uh, have the picture and um, you could even uh, have like the audio of this episode playing underneath a quote from, uh, you know, the or the picture from the lab. Yeah, just, just so the listeners understand what we're talking about, one of these number of pictures, but my favorite is there's a beaker marked cocaine and there's clearly cocaine all over the desk. Right? <laughs> like, Montana. Everywhere. And there's also uh, liquid paper and um, some sort of oil lubricant. Um, not sure why those are there, but... Um, liquid paper in, in an accredited lab is an absolute no-no. That's oh. like That's like whiteout or correcting your mistakes on using that. You have to have everything you write down on your paper uh, legible so people can see. So if you're like, anyways, that's that's a technical thing, but that's... No, but that's, that's a good point. Anytime, anytime there's a correction made to a document, you have to do just one cross out and then you have to sign and date that correction. I mean, that's, that's a standard across every testing lab. That even was when I was uh, at Medtronic doing 
are like research and design testing on like medical equipment, if there was ever a number that you had to, oh, whoops, I wrote that down. The decimal was one point off one slash through it and then sign and date. I mean, we had a really big discussion because there were some people in the lab at the time that were doing two hashes. Two hashes was too many. So it has to, everything has to be legible. You cannot be using whiteout in your yeah. results. <laughs> you, you would also got caught, uh, got caught uh, their cocaine, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's abs- I mean, it just gives, it's like, it sounds like chaos, complete and utter chaos. All right. Uh, next one. All right. Next quote. Um, now, explain the, the, uh, mass spectrometer, gas chromatograph, or excuse me, the gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer. Explain that testing process. Okay, it was you put one milligram, you know, one ml, well, it's maybe one and a half ml vial, and maybe an ml solvent, preferably methanol. We used to use ethanol, whatever you want to use. Cap it. We used to run the uh, standard, the cocaine standard, as I told you, I made up a blank in the sample. When the state police took us over, they wanted us to do a blank after every sample, which they did in Boston. But we, I can tell the difference between contamination. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So I didn't, didn't think that was necessary, but they did. So we ran a blank after every one. And you ran a blank just so, I guess you say there's no carryover from mm-hmm. one test to the next. But you can tell the difference. No, I understand. So state police required you to yes. do that. And it's fair to say the standard, the standard working group yeah, probably, yeah. For accreditation. Yeah. So now, if you can just bring us through the... Okay, then you should. It goes, it's a, it's a robotic arm, picks up the sample, it puts a syringe in, rinses the syringe five times first in methanol, sticks into the sample, rinses uh, three or four times in your sample, picks up a sample, <laughs> injects it onto the, into the GC. GC's got a excuse me, column maybe 90 feet long, 100 feet long, capillary convert thin, and all the constituents of the sample go through it, and they separate as they come through. When they separate, they enter the mass spec, which is the confirmation part of it. <coughs> it computerized, and they, uh, it prints out a, a mass uh, spectrum of the results, and that's you, you match with the standards, which they did internally with the computer through their library. But it also matched our standards, which we always ran a standard with. And how long did that process take? Depends on how many samples. Usually most runs ran overnight. So at this time, when the machines are doing what they do, the sample that you took from, Mm -hmm. that's been sealed. That's been sealed back up, yeah. It's already, as soon as you finish sampling it, you we're supposed to seal it back up. And you would initial those bags? Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, say, say, if you were doing a, say, a 2,000 bag mm-hmm. sample came in, would you sometimes pre-initial bags just to get it out of the way? No. You never pre-initial no. any bags? If you know, I mean. I, you know, maybe I don't remember. And, you know, I mean, the big bags you're putting it back into, possibly, but I, I don't think so. So, like, that last part is huge because Sonia Ferrick testified that she'd routinely take his pre-signed um, baggies in order to steal from his samples that he had already finished processing. So she would just pocket, like, a dozen of them 
and then go to the evidence room, look for samples that he had worked on and then uh, steal from them and then replace the baggie. Um, now also, oh, I got to talk with one of my clients. This was, this was a direct issue in his case. Uh, it was a handshake case and he went to trial shortly after um, Farrick was arrested and Hanchett was allowed to testify that it was impossible for Farrick to get into uh, his samples because he he sealed and initialed his bags. <laughs> so, hey, or not? And not to be too boring and technical, but you know that blank issue can't be skipped over. I think what um, a listener might not know is a blank is the is sort of a dummy sample between your active samples designed to um, sort of like wine tasters uh, between sips of different wine. They, I don't know what they do. They swill something else to, to, to get out the taste. Um, the, the purpose of the blank is both to prevent, but also to detect contamination. And so this idea that, 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 uh, that you're, you don't need to rely on science if quote, I can tell by looking. The whole point of these machines is so that someone doesn't say on a witness stand, I can tell by looking that that's cocaine. Um, so he can now say that the machine is not contaminated, not because he's using a, a system designed to protect and detect uh, uh, problems with integrity, uh, but just because he can tell. So he, they skipped the use of uh, a proper use of blanks, which I think is another issue. Well, he can just tell, like, I mean, is there any truth to the rumor that he's now on the CDC under Trump? Because he doesn't really need science or machines to tell him what to do. He can just tell what's, what means what in science. Right. So huh. he can tell that it's pure and quote, when he cleans it up, and then he can tell that uh, the, the tests aren't uh, contaminated. Uh, interesting. No problem. They just need him. He's the sample whisperer. All right, next one. <laughs> did and um, about how long I, I know this is kind of a general question in terms of just say cocaine or heroin for example how long would it, would it take you to do a batch of uh, samples ah, it depends on whether we had overtime or not you know it could be it depends on the, the difficulty of the sample it could be two to three batches a week you know so we're talking it depends on what you took out 10 to 15 maybe 20 would be the max it took 20 out, you're doing maybe two batches. You're probably doing 35, 40 samples. I, I gave all those notes to the police. I, I had it, we recorded everything every chemist did, analyzed, that's all. You guys have all that stuff somewhere. Okay, so let's talk about that. So in terms of Amherst, you or Alan mm -hmm. or Sharon, I, I'm taking you created this spreadsheet of how many samples per month each chemist did. It was created inside the program. Uh, when the, we made the, uh, the original program we made, I had nothing to do with it. It was Alan and uh, Steve Ridley down in Boston. And that automatically generated a report monthly. And that would, uh, just when samples were analyzed, how many, what towns, what cities, whatever, what county, chemists, how many they did, that was done monthly. Was, that, was there a separate spreadsheet that just indicated the various chemists and how many done per month? Yes, that was Sharon. Once uh, we with the new computer system, Sharon would do that in a uh, Excel file. And I still think the same thing. She would print out a report and all that stuff would be listed in the report. 
what the chemists had done. They had nobody down in Boston do it, so Sharon had to do theirs too. They uh, were you know, proficient with Excel, so. Okay. And um, was this given to Julian Asif, who, who, who received this report and reviewed it? If you know, that was no, I don't know. I, I know, but I'm sure Julie got a copy. But it was it went to the area DAs, as far as I know. The chemist list, you know, she should give me a copy of it, and I'm sure uh, Chuck would get a copy of it. And out of the file, all that stuff was all saved somewhere. Do you have a copy of this? These no, things now? No, none of that stuff. Well, he was fired. How would he have a copy of it? He doesn't have his work computer, right? All right, let's uh, let's go to the next one because I think they get into uh, how many people we're doing a month. All right, here we go. Um, would it be unusual for someone to say do six hundred or seven hundred samples a month? Well, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Well, no, it wasn't working with me. Yeah, no, no, I understand. But even even okay, say now I know who you're referring to. You're referring to Andy too. Yes. Okay, so say if uh, in a lab, say if Annie was doing maybe fifteen hundred samples, mm -hmm. um, and someone was doing maybe six hundred. Would mm -hmm. that, in your capacity as a supervisor at a drug lab, would that raise any concerns for you? Yes, I would think something's fishy. Yeah. And and that's not only asked to the fifteen hundred a month, but also probably the six hundred a month. Is that fair? <sighs> it depends on the complexity of the sample. It's possible to do six hundred if you worked a lot of overtime. And you had easy samples. If you had all marijuanas, you had 400 marijuanas, it would be very probable you could do it. Or, uh, I'd say more like three, 350 would probably be a more of an average. I would, you know, 250 to 350, depending on the complexity. Yeah. So, like, I've never been able to figure this out, but one of the numbers he cites, 1,500, um, I've never been able to determine if, if actually knew that that was the right around the total amount of analyses that Farrick reported um, at Hinton during her most productive month. I don't know if he picked out of the hat or not, but um, uh, that's right around her record. Um, it, it's a little bit apples to oranges uh, because of the Amherst lab. They were doing both sets of analyses, but, uh, you know, still uh, the numbers that he cites as sort of shocking to him, even just for marijuana, are way less than the numbers that we discussed, uh, you know, previously when we were talking about the most recent OIG document dump. So from in March of 2004, it's talking about Farrick uh, performing 875 primary analyses, and that um, doesn't even, you know, take into account all our GCMS work. Just function highlight you know, the, the numbers were way, way off. Yeah. I like, I like that he scoffed at the idea that someone in his well-run lab would be able to have such a high volume. That was, uh, you know, he, that, that wouldn't have passed muster with him. Um, with the cocaine all over the desk. But, you know, the, the other thing too about the marijuana, I mean, again, uh, I don't, uh, I, I feel like a broken record here, but I have seen evidence uh, 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 of systematic testing with a machine of marijuana. I, I know that on occasion it was, the machine was used, but I've, I've read and I've heard that people uh, 
uh, held it up to the light and looked at it, which to me is not, that's not a scientific test. So I no. think the only times they ran it through the GCMS is if they had something like liquid THC, which is sort of exceedingly rare. Otherwise, they right. had a separate battery of tests that they were supposed to be applying to the vegetable matter. But it was but mostly right. visual tests, right? It wasn't like necessarily I it was it was in a microscope. I think they're supposed yeah. to, but one of the issues that came up with Dukin was that she was not doing that part of it. Right. Because, I mean, uh, my understanding, and I'm going to uh, obviously defer to anyone with a chemistry background, uh, but uh, it, you, you can't tell by looking uh, at a, a marijuana plant uh, if it's uh, marijuana with THC or if it's hemp. That's my understanding. Um, you might say you can tell, um, but that's the reason why we have a machine and not some guy named Vern who tells you whether it's marijuana or not. <laughs> Who's on LSD. All right. Let's, well, that's a recurring issue, the marijuana, the, the breezing through the samples. Uh, you know, so someone could do 400 marijuana samples a month. Yeah, because it wasn't actually probably being rigorously tested. Right. And um, beyond that, marijuana is legal now and has been, you know, like the one thing people, the voters have a consensus on seemingly a 60% consensus every time a marijuana related issue comes up, the voters vote for it resoundingly and um, to, to be less criminalized in here. We're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of people that were arrested and charged with marijuana charges that for something that's now legal and the state and, and, you know, Elias is talking about how nefarious the science is beyond all that, like this, we don't even care about pot and the state still hasn't dismissed any of these charges, right? They, they're, I mean, they've dismissed the Farrakh related stuff, but they, they, they don't just go back and say, you know what, marijuana is legal now. Let's go back and just say retroactively, okay, you don't have a criminal record because you were convicted of a pot possession or distribution. Right. That they're still arresting people for large amounts or charging them. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Randy, skip the next one and go to the one after that. Skip the next one. Give me a second here. And there we go. That should be for all person. Can you describe that? What was she like in your interactions? Strange, to say the least. Takes all kinds. She would get in some fights with her girlfriend and it was just screaming on her cell phone. She'd go out in the hall and it was just... Ugh. Hey, if they have the courage to engage uh, to discipline her, discipline her. Uh, the only time I ever talked to her toward the end, you know, I could see her work lows slipping. I did talk to her about, you know, you gotta pick the pace up the state police run charts now, you know. You know, you know, you do a good enough job, you know, they're gonna come down on us, so yeah. up the pace. What was her reaction to that? Didn't really say much. Didn't no, it's just kind of, you know, I've been busy or had a lot of hard samples. And it, it does, you know, you can, you know, once in a while that does happen. You get a bad, you know, bad month or two. You just get nasty samples and you just can't get rid of them. And you say more complicated. Yes. And it does happen, but not, it, it just seemed that the last few months, it just seemed to be too much. She just dropped down, you know, I wouldn't say in half, but it was a noticeable drop that I, I did say something to her. I left her. She'd have a desk, but 
you know, showing the results of you know what she did compared to what Becky did. And Rebecca was always pretty much the same. Sonia was the same too. She was doing great until, like I said, the last couple of months, and I didn't notice. Uh, did you ever receive complaints from law enforcement personnel about Sonia? No. Um, um, did you? So you said you never really only a couple of times you had to speak to her concerning yeah, her output. Yeah, it was just it. But it was it was anything her her attendance, her appearance. Well, appearance was never great, but I mean that's not my business. <laughs> I mean she was meticulous in her work. I mean that's I'm far from meticulous. So I mean. So when you say meticulous in her work, what did she do that stood out? Everything was so neat. She'd arrange everything in the bag, you know, all in order. Yeah, I would just throw it in, sign it, seal it, done. She would have it so you could see every bag she tested, every bag's labeled. Right. Didn't want to waste my time. And that was during the entire course of her employee until you said those last couple of months. Yes. Did you notice any of the odd type behavior from her other than what you've already described to us? Yeah, she was kind of missing in action a lot. I noticed she was wandering. A few times I see her down the end of the hall, and there's no bathroom down there. I just think my mind said to her, oh, look, the friend working down there or something? She goes, no, no, I just had to use the bathroom or something, which didn't make sense because there was a bathroom next door, but I guess they could have been cleaning it. <coughs> and she... Let's say the last few months she's, she was wandering. Uh, and so you worked for, for a pretty long time, right? Probably eight, ten years. Now, when she first came into the lab, she was hired by Charles Fleming? I don't think so. He was like, my understanding was she was hired in the AIDS lab. And she transferred into the drug lab after a year or so. So that's, that's again, it's hearsay. And, and when did she... Did you, had you been making requests for more cameras? Did she just arrive at your lab one day? I, we must have uh, after what we had the last round of retirements. I, you know, we must have. I, Alan must have made a request for more chemists, and uh, they hired Becky, and they uh, Sonia must have got wind of it and applied for the job out here. Okay, so no one from the Amherst lab had any role in in, uh, in hiring Sonia. No. So, did you know anything about her background or other than history? No, other than that she had told me she worked on the AIDS lab when she started. That's all. And worked in the drug lab. You know, she told me who she worked with. And did did she ever share any personal information with you? Did you ever inquire? I didn't even know she was married until afterwards. I think Becky told me she had a wedding ring on. I guess never said a word to me. And I never noticed, but I think that was late, just prior to uh, you know, closing the lab. You know, I, I knew I, I the fight she used to have on the phone. I, it's weird. It's almost like their recorder got cut in the middle of them talking there. Yep. I certainly don't want to be disparaging of people with drug problems or you know, make fun of people's appearances. The only thing that's um, relevant in, in that um, clip is that um, I mentioned before, after she went to the DEA school, they taught her how to make crack cocaine, and she seems to have spiraled out of control. So the months that he's talking about is sort of directly after he went to she went to that training. Yeah. And that was like towards the end of her, like that's where she was just blatantly leaving stuff out, right? And right. Yeah. And that's how I mean, and that seems to be the only way they would find like if she 
even this could still be going on. Like she, if she maintained, well, probably not under the state police if they were going to do the transfer, but she clearly like by doing decent paperwork and making her samples look nice, pulled the wool over this guy's eyes. Like he saw that because he's clearly a slob and, and doesn't, you know, he's not meticulous like Sonya as he says, but like, I think all she did was dot her I's and cross her T's and uh, submit nice, like clean samples to him. And he just never suspected of any, her doing anything. She got away with drug theft for eight years. Yeah. Out of curiosity, why is the DEA training people on how to make crack? I don't know. And also, why is the DEA uh, drug testing the people who they let into those programs? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, like a survival program where they teach you how to do everything. Anyway, how to track hair with twine. All right, um, let's let's hit the. I think the next one is about uh, procedures. You want to skip over that one? You want to hear about the procedures, or you want to go to back to standards? Maybe the issue about them not having written procedures comes up. Uh, it's, a, it's a five minute clip though, so hold on to your butts. Let's do it. Next um, one. Did. So this, I'm kind of going back here again. Um, did you did the lab have any written guidelines for testing? Because I know you had indicated you're yes. trying to be follow the accreditation standards as best you could. Did you ever? Yes, we had a protocol. Had a protocol. Was that protocol in writing? Yes, it was. It was. Where was it located? It was. We had a library in the main lab. We had the DEA manuals on how to you know, sample drugs. And most of the time, you know, Rebecca went to the DEA school, so they. They had those courses. We had the books there. We had, you know, many manuals on how to analyze different drugs. And we had the powder protocol, which they were, were required to, to use when they were trained. And that was the one that came in in the 80s from the professor. Yes. In the right. Were there, the um, 80s, yeah. were there any other? Did you keep up to date the slides? The slide we kept up to date with these rabbit were these old manuals? They were old manuals, but we, no, we got the, um, uh, the microgram from the DEA, which had new testing methods. And, but the drugs, the testing methods stay the same. The, the drugs, you know, they don't change. Cocaine and heroin haven't changed. Heroin doesn't change. Yes, there was new drugs, but, you know, MDMA and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, you know, we did the same testing as you do on any other, like methamphetamine or amphetamine. Basically, the testing was the same. You know, they're all phenethylamine compounds, so the testing was very similar. The only tricky ones were heroin or were about heroin. Was, uh, LSD was a little more tricky than uh, mushrooms. That was, and that was never covered in the protocol. We, Becky had uh, written up a, uh, our uh, SLP manual that was all done in there. And I, I gave her, Misha and Sharon and Alan probably gave her all the information she needed to, to you know, construct that protocol. And I'm sure you got a copy of that. And why, why did you have that? Why was that? Uh, Sweet. So something you were trying to follow. Yeah. You had to have something in writing showing this is what, I mean, this is how we sample drugs. And I'm sure you've seen, I have a copy that the quality assurance audit that they did back in 2012. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? I've seen it, but I don't remember it. Okay. And they went through various things, uh, instrument logs, um, and, um, you know, checking the reliability of regents, right, those types of, those types of things, correct. Uh, now, uh, James, it's fair to say that 
this is this was kind of in, in the eyes of the state police when they came in. It was a bad report for the lab. I don't think so. I, you know, it wasn't ten years ago. They were doing the same thing. It was you know they, you know, finally got the money to uh, to upgrade their system too. So it wasn't. I knew some of the older chemists there. I was. Oh no, I understand that, but I'm just saying, like, if 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 you were a lay person and you were to look at this. I think that stuff is minor, but they. Okay. Just, so yeah. that's just, that's your opinion. My opinion. Okay. Um, but what I said, like, to my question is that, and um, that if a lay person were to look at it, it would, do you think it would look fair to say it would look kind of bad? Uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know if they'd understand it. Okay. I, mean, I, I really didn't think it was that bad. Yes, we had we had some defaults, deficiencies, I should say, but nothing. We basically followed the sweet protocol. I mean. Like I said, a lot of that stuff is just dotting the eyes and crossing the T's. It's not, it doesn't affect the results of the samples. Okay. So, um, in terms of becoming accredited, mm -hmm. and I know that was your goal or the goal at some well, point. Well, we tried, but it was like, you know, somebody put the garage on that. And that was, the, because of, that was because of a money issue. Exactly. Okay. Now, and all the other public health labs were accredited. And, and by, by my knowledge, I guess, and I was told they were all accredited except the drug lab. I think there was 12 or 13 labs in the building and all they were all accredited except us. So, Do they have similar budgets? Yeah. If you no, I have no idea. Feeding the food and all that sort of Yeah, they did, well, they, you know, they got a lot of money for the, for the you know, after 9-11. Uh, they got a lot of money for chemical, uh, well, yeah, they did find something, a, a World War One. Bomb was the only thing they ever found. I want to see something sufficient to put it in. That was the only time they ever found anything. But they got all new equipment. Yeah. Um, we got the leftovers. Good. So that's, again, government money well spent after 9 11. There's a, a, a bonanza of cash going around to these testing labs to test for explosive and nefarious terrorist things, and the only thing they ever found was a World War One bomb, according to Hanchett. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I want to get into, I just sent you guys a copy of the PDF of the Mass State Police audit that he's referring to, and it takes a while to go through the whole thing. But yep. basically, you remember he was saying... You know, it didn't look really good, right, Jim? And Jim's like, no, 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 I think those are minor things. So, like, just breezing through the first page, question one, is unit staff aware of the quality assurance manual? No, staff does not have a quality manual. <laughs> are the instrument logs current and complete? No, logs not in existence prior to the end of September 2012, dot, dot, dot. Uh, is evidence in the unit properly secured? No not in the short-term overnight safe storage, which may contain unsealed evidence, which all staff can access, which we now know is a huge problem. And four, uh, is all evidence properly marked and sealed? Uh, evidence is sealed, but no initials, dates on seals. Um, additionally, evidence stored in the short-term overnight safe may not always be uh, sealed according to staff. So that's just the first page of this document. Um, those are all, <laughs> you know, Half of those are, are, you know, problems that really go to the swig drug issue. The other half are problems that allowed Farrah to, um, you know, conduct her, get away with this misconduct for so long. Right. 
And the fact that he's just says that was dotting that, like securing evidence, securing samples, properly initialing to make sure of ownership of drug uh, evidence, all of that stuff, he's just saying is dotting I's and crossing T's. Like, having a quality assurance manual, having... Well, on the next page, Chris, uh, question, does it have... Um, uh, uh, do, do they routinely check the reliability of reagents? No. Do they keep records of commercial reagents, uh, i.e., uh, uh, I believe that's referring to the primary standards? No. Um, if they also, are received, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Have all new procedures been properly validated? Uh, no. No validations were shown. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. There's also no training manual, uh, right? No training manual ex uh, exists. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'm not sure what he's referring to as the manual, but. Um, so he's referring to apparently like one of his predecessors brought back to the lab something he got from the DEA school in the 60s. Okay, so that's one thing. And then there's this microgram journal that gets published. And as I mentioned in prior episodes, it wasn't public for years and years and years. And if actual chemists had been scrutinizing this, it, we would have made an issue. So that's what he's saying are his lab's protocols and procedures, but I think maybe Jamie can speak to this. That's not what a formal adopted protocol and procedure is supposed to be in a lab. It has to be specific to your lab. It has to have all of the materials and everything used in your process. And it has to have the specific certifications for how you're running your uh, processes or else what are you actually following? They're following a general guideline and then they're working it all from rote or from memory as to how it works in their lab because the general guidelines will never know what, what exact chemicals you're allowed to buy or what things, what materials you're using or and how the chemicals respond with what you're doing. Like they do have general things like the GCMS, I'm sure that every lab uses or, but even back then there was no if they're going by something from the 60s, there was no GCMS back then. So what are they really going by? And what are they what are they doing? It's all just patchwork guest stuff. And he thinks he's Mr. Good Enough when they have nothing. And you can tell by that state police lab that the state police uh, people who I think actually know what quality is are alarmed that they don't even have a quality manual. And a quality manual is just a basis for how your lab operates. Like what what it is that may, that you're doing and how uh, scientifically you are proving it and what processes you maintain to, you know, revise documents, to update procedures as, you know, things change and become more current. You have to document all of that stuff and keep it up to date. And the fact that he just thinks that's dotting I's and crossing T's says a lot about how this lab was being run. Can you talk means for a procedure to be properly validated specifically? Or What's that? For a procedure to be properly validated? So. Yeah. So for a procedure to be properly validated, you have to, number one, make, like prove uh, the viability of what you're doing. So what you're doing scientifically um, is making sense. And then to validate the procedure, you have to have other people sign off on it and review it. So it's not just you saying, this is what you do. You have other people whether in the lab or outside of the lab, you hire a third-party agency to review your procedures and validate that what you are doing 
is actually what it what you say you are doing. Gotcha. So it can't just be one person saying this is what we do and we're proving it scientifically. It has to be an independent or a group of people. Usually in companies, it's groups of people who do the, these kind of reviews to validate procedures. And uh, you bring in expertise from like manufacturing and, you know, uh, the supply chain and all different areas here in the small lab. They don't have all that. They just have, you know, it's a one stop shop, but you still need independence in, in their procedures to make sure that you're doing everything uh, properly and you're, you're not missing anything. Like not one, one person can't know it all, you know? Right. So next one. Okay, here we go. Next clip. Can we, uh, can I just go back to the standard? Yeah. So, uh, so I understand it. Mm -hmm. The standards you would make would be the, can I use the word residue or residual after an IR test? Yeah, so the powder that was left out of it wasn't used, yes. Okay. And I think you said that you didn't, uh, it, at some point, you didn't have to run IR tests because another test right. superseded it. Yes, it superseded it. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say, just so I understand, that you would run the IR test in order, to, you know, to make the, make the standard? So it's not like you're just make it standard, you're actually running a test. Now, we ran the IR tests on the uh, trafficking. Yes. And that was the only time we did it, but then that was stopped. We used to, and I'm not, it wasn't just the IR test, I'm, I'm take that back, I'm wrong. We also used to quant all the IR, all the uh, trafficking cases, and that's when we get some sample left over too. You need, I think when we quanted uh, Coke, you might need 20 milligrams. So if you took some out of each bag or something, you might end up with 25 or 30 milligrams and you have 10 left over. You know, you mix them together into a vial, dilute it, and then uh, do get a GC and, and quantitate it that way. And we would have some left over there. So also with sampling and from quants. And we did quants up until maybe, whew, I don't know, 2010 maybe? And then we, it was right around the period in there and he stops because we were just falling too far behind. And, and I'm sorry, I would have a C student in chemistry. <laughs> and what quants your 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 um, trying to get a result percentage oh, percentage of how much coke right. is in that? Yes, we used to do all trafficking cases. Okay, up until a point when when that point was, I don't remember. I was thinking maybe 2010, but. 2010, but I'm not positive. Okay. So the answer to my question that, you know, you, you, you need standards. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll, I'll run an IR test mm -hmm. on, on this for a quad, for a quad, for a quad. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll, I'll, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, so the situation lined up more, or, you know, yeah, there was always available because I mean, probably up in Springfield, there was tons of stuff. Tons of stuff. I mean, it, it wasn't like you had to wait. It was, you know, <laughs> I understand. How about uh, just uh, did did you said that a lot of times you testify, and uh, sometimes uh, you'd be called by defense. Yes, that, it really, really, that's all it was. Really, yeah. So, were you ever defense would call either cross-examined, direct-examined on, on the stand? regarding how you 
how you made standards and stuff like that. Was there any sort of question on yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think we did get answered a question one time. I was just that was recently. I think that was right after the signed a problem. Well, I think yeah, yeah, I think you, I think you were in in in. I think you were in some sort of hearing on on yeah. this, but in your normal course of sort of testifying, and uh, you go through your sort of procedure. Well, um, you know, Mr. Hanchin, yeah. how did you come to your conclusion? Yeah. Did you did you ever did you ever testify on how how you did these things? I didn't recall. I mean, I testified how I sampled, just the way I explained to you guys. But sure. I don't know if I really ever had to testify how the standards were made or how they were procured or or whatever. That was never. No one ever asked me if I ran a standard. They would say yes. Well, I ran a standard. They didn't disclose what they were doing. Of course, they would have asked me. If they had let people know that they were doing. Yeah, the question is, did they say the way Annie Dukin said that the samples come from a reputable manufacturer? Um, you know, because a, a defense lawyer is going to stop asking questions at that point. Right, but but Annie got asked that question, but for some reason, Hanson never did. I, that's... Uh, we know. We haven't gone through every transcript, but... Yeah, you know. That's what he says, according to him. But that's, I mean, that's a major... Because what if he got asked that question and and I mean you think he would have answered it honestly? I mean what I think would have answered it in a way that made it look a lot different than what he was actually doing, right? right. Yeah, I mean, he had said the only right. time he testified about this uh, was recently, so the um, he's referring to the original Kinder hearings where Luke Ryan, after getting this Mass State Police. Um, quality assurance audit report starts asking questions. He still doesn't have the full picture, but that's that's the first and only time he was about this report. Uh, and again, it's because their lab wasn't, they weren't disclosing what they were doing. The other thing I wanted to say is he mentioned quants, which are you know, quantitative analyses, but like which are important in federal cases. They're not important in mass state cases, but the lab was processing some samples for the feds, and you cannot do that without a certified primary standard, because it's about how much drug is in the sample, and you have to know exactly what purity the standard is in order to make those calculations. Right. Okay. Okay. To go back, we had, we had Luke Ryan on um, seems like a million years ago, but uh, in, in one of the first episodes. And I believe he detected the use of a non-primary standard because there was there were additional peaks. And I think Jim Hent that talks about that, that, that you could when when the thing breaks down or it's not pure, you're gonna have other peaks. Well, why are we looking if you didn't let that happen, why was Luke Ryan looking at a printout that showed multiple peaks? And so there, there, that, that tells me uh, what I didn't need to be told, which is a process that's not scientific is going to yield unscientific results. And right. there's your proof. If they had kept the, uh, uh, if they had done it properly, which I don't think is possible, but if they, if they did it the way they claim they did it, Luke wouldn't have seen a, 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 a printout with multiple peaks. Next one, Rand. All right. Um, and there was a time on October 7th, 2013, that you were called by the defense, uh, 
by the counsel for the defendants, and you were questioned in regards to what you had just mentioned to the captain. Um, and you you basically walk them through um, the testing procedures of the lab, mm -hmm. policies. Um, you know, they talked about when we talked about audits and, and things of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, well, you know, we used to do audits, and it was done. I think the uh, evidence officer did a monthly up until I don't know what year, maybe two thousand five or something, and you know. After we printed that, I'm not sure if they they did or not, and I, I thought they did, but I'm not positive if that uh, the BDI, I mean, uh, Northeastern did a audit. Him and his uh, assistant came down and, and went through the labs and checked our procedures. Okay, and you said that stopped in 2005. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Is there any reason that that stopped? Yeah, uh, Donald McRae was the evidence officer. She used to self audit. I thought it was monthly, but I I wasn't in charge, you know, so I really couldn't tell you exactly. So now, in this hearing that was in October of 2013, you, you gave pretty lengthy testimony. Mm -hmm. I read that, and um, you guys discussed some of the things that we talked about earlier here today. Um, and I believe one of the lawyers asked you uh, if there would ever be occasions where samples that you would use a standard would contain contain adulterants. Yes. And, and your answer to that was, it's possible. I said some of the secondary standards were obtained from the street. Mm -hmm. Could you remember testifying to that? No, but I, that's that's where it came from. Okay. And the set of follow up that, and your goal as in preparing them was to eliminate the adulterants found in them. Yes. Okay. And your answer was, I tried. I did a fairly quick extraction, and it usually cleaned it up fairly well. <laughs> okay. And that's yeah. what that's what you described yeah. to us earlier. So. Now, when you had answered that some of the secondary standards were obtained from the street, those mm -hmm. the standards that you were making came directly from the police samples. Yes, correct. Um, the way I told you, I obtained them. Okay. And <clears throat> it would either be directly taking them and putting it in a vial and breaking it down, mm -hmm. whether you know to make a certain amount of MLs. Yeah. Or you use what you described to the captain as the. The remainder of the test, the IR test. Yeah. So it was, if, if anything that went into the vial was was obtained, you know, through a company. The only things that I would make from the street would be the cocaine heroin standard. Okay. That was the only ones. Okay, so the only, so only as to cocaine and heroin that they came directly from the, the police sample right. that you would take up. That's because we use so much of it. We, like I said, we go through ten mLs every three three months or so, three to six months. Okay, so there were, there were basically two ways. To manufacture it, the way that you yeah. take it, taking it directly from the, yeah. the police submitted or using the vial. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, at any point, and I'm going to narrow it down. So we're talking maybe 2010, mm -hmm. 11, 12. At any point, did you see yourself, or you can, as an open ended question, were you running through more standards than you thought you should be using? We didn't make good records. I don't, it's hard to say. I have no fucking clue. Something disappeared. I mean, <laughs> by breaking down, like LSD. The 10 milligram vial, it's hard to say how much, you know, was taken out. I'm only supposed to take, you know, when I, I used to use a paper clip, wet it in methanol, used? stick the paper clip in, and you get a little crystal, and that's what I used to make the uh, sample. I have no idea what Becky or uh, Sonia would do. They would take more. And like I said, I would, when it was, it was low, I would reorder, and, and that's LSD. 
and psilocybin, psilocybin would break down, so it doesn't last that long. But I never noticed <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah, like, you know, it was Becky, or you know, Sonia comments you and saying, Jim, you know, we're out of cocaine again. No, no, not that I recall. No, because. Like, with that, when I might say that, like, it kind of set off maybe. Well, like, there's only one milligram in there, you know, and even in a 10 ml mill, vial, you only have 10 milligrams. I don't even think that's enough to get you high, is it? Probably need 40 or 50. So, I, no, plus you, that was contaminated with heroin, so, no, it never even crossed my mind. I, I never had any idea that she was taking drugs, believe me. I would have known I reported it as instantly as I found out. Um, Weird if something was over at, if you were working at your lab bench and someone went over to that cabinet, it's pretty fair that you, you couldn't see them. True. So it was, it was on the other side of the lab. Yeah. And you had offices and various dishwashers in between, so it blocked your line of sight. Yep. Okay. How were those stored in there? What type of bottles or vials? They're around, you know, maybe 20, you know, 25 milligram or smaller. Vials. Most of some were big. We our pitch, which we had a lot. <coughs> Heroin were all little tiny vials. Most of the things that we purchased were very small amounts. The stuff we got from pharmaceutical, uh, you know, pharmacies closing were, were large amounts. Amphetamine, we have a big bottle of that. We had a big bottle of uh, uh, phenobarbital, you know, quinine, caffeine, stuff like that. We had large bottles, but. So, Chris, I saw you ask in the chat about the weird cut audio-wise. So that's somewhere in this audio file that you guys have, this redacted um, interview. That's from this raw footage. That's not me. That's just there's a random cut in the audio. That could mean a few things. It could have just been something as simple as if they're holding the recorder and they accidentally hit pause the recording would stop the sound. Um, so that's possible. It's also possible that maybe there was a pause for a reason. I don't know. It just seemed pretty convenient that it came after what he said, and then there was radio silence, and then, oh, so, I don't know. It seems kind of weird to me. Yeah, and so that was right after um, he was saying, I would have reported Sonia if I knew, right? Right, right. It was like, yeah, I would have reported it if I knew. Pause. Is that what you really mean? This is now off the record. Are you sure that's what you mean? All right, let's resume. Resume. So I don't know. It's weird. Well, or, I mean, we, it could be a splice um, right. too, right? Right. Splice out. Um, it could have been a whole yeah. minute conversation. Yeah, you have really no idea. When you said it was redacted, is, what, is this purportedly a redacted uh, audio? That's how it's labeled, but I'm not actually sure. So some of some of this, it's abundantly clear that they redacted certain things. So I believe there's a portion in the, maybe the Rebecca Fonts interview where they're asking her if Farrick ever said anything weird about drug use and she recounts some event. And I, I have a feeling it has to do with Farrick's partner. And part of that, it's clear that there's a redacted portion, but I didn't pick up on this cut. Uh, when I had listened to it in this right. particular interview. But I mean, they're not telling, so they're telling you stuff was redacted, but they're not telling you what's redacted. Right. Um, and why. Or, that, or when. Or why, right. Uh, next one, I believe, is the BZP stuff, Ilias. So this is... Uh, right. yeah. 
I think he's like, I know nothing, but it's it's another long clip about designer drugs and BZP, the other um, investigation that no one knows about. Go ahead. All right, here we go. So and this was one other thing I, that I want to ask you about. It's things that I, it's been called my attention through. I mean, of course, as you know, the lab keeps a lot of, a lot of documents. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about some designer-type drugs, mm-hmm. club drugs, yep. I guess. And, Ecstasy and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah stuff like that. And, um, and I, I'm just guessing here, it's, it's, it, would it be fair to say that those drugs started to come in the lab maybe in the mid to late 90s? Yeah. With glow sticks? I mean, we occasionally got them earlier. I mean, that's, that's been around since the, uh, you know, the 80s, I, you know. Like MDMA yeah. and those types of things. Yeah, she's up. Sorry. Um, no, they've been around. They've been around a while. Did, did you test a lot of them at the lab? MDMA? Yeah, at the end, we were testing a lot, a lot of them. Like ecstasy? Yeah. Okay. MDMA, yes. Yeah. Did you, you've heard of a substance called uh, BZP, have, have you? Yes. Okay. And what is BZP? Can't remember. <laughs> it's been a while, but I know what it is. It was a, it usually was a dilute in, in, in uh, methamphetamine stuff that sometimes would come that way, and sometimes it was that would be all that was there. And you uh, said the name, I'd remember it. But I don't. And that's so long. Okay, so um, it's going to be benzo something. <laughs> uh, I can't pronounce it. Benzo piperazine. Appearing. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. And um, now in terms of when these drugs came in, was there any policies or any additional procedures that you enacted when these types of drugs came in in no. terms of classification or anything like that? Not after they became uh, assistant analysis or tattoos. They did everything. And it was just the luck of the draw. When you went in there and your samples, you got the next 15 or 20 samples in line. Did Sonia ever ask you any questions about BZP or classifications of drugs and how they were classified? And yeah, occasionally she was, especially class E's and stuff, and C's, and even as a couple of D's. You know. But most of that stuff was handled by the computer, anyways. Once you put the drug in, it would automatically know the class. And that's because the program the program had a library. Yeah, pre-programmed. Yes. Okay, and that would, so that's yeah. Um, were there, did you hear anything about um, the class E drugs? Did you ever look at any law books like MGL 94C? Yes. And try to see if right. you ever refer? Yes, we had ever listed Those are the state drug laws. D, B, C, and D. D drugs. Okay. Um, did you, have you ever heard of a drug called... Um, Fenproporex? No. Like a stimulant, like a diet drug? Oh, that's that new one. No, that, that was uh, that was on your Class C. Yeah, I remember that one. It's It looks like kind of in, like amphetamine, but it's not. I'm sorry, what class did you say? I think it's an E. E is an echo? And it was there when I was there, at least. I don't think it moved up. Yeah, so at any point, so when you had a Class C drug, what steps did you take to confirm that it was a Class C drug? It depends what it was. A lot of times, Class E drugs, we just uh, did a visual. We compare it to a uh, you know computer printout from it, you know something online. So we literally, a, no uh, testing. <laughs> Micromedics is a company that we give it a good look over. Uh, hospitals yeah. and pharmacies with all this drugs. C drug. We had a, a copy of that on our computer, which we purchased and 
you type in the markings on the drug, it would come back with a uh, description of what the pill looked like and what was in the drug. And it was a class C that was sufficient for our analysis. We didn't go any further. Okay, so what if you got, say, if the police seized drugs, then maybe they thought it was something, but you got it and there was no markings on them or anything that you could use, like a pill book or yeah. what would you do? Same testing as you did for the powder powder pop. You'd run it just like it was a cocaine or something and see if anything came up. Okay. And, um, what if it was identified as a certain substance? Would you then go back to the to the MGLs and would you look to see yes, if it was, it was controlled? Right. right, if it was controlled. Or you just, all you gotta do is go back into the, and look in your, either the red book or, or the pharmacopoeia or any of those and look and see if it's an RX. It's an RX next to it, that means it's a class A. Okay. So that's what we'd say, okay, class A visual. In your time at the lab, was there any, was there any time that you would kind of just maybe guess? About class C's or no, no, no. So you, in terms of what you did, you you always you had to have a, a photocopy of the uh, the description of the film. Okay. If it was obtainable, if not, we we had a uh, poison uh, hotline too. We called at times when we're stuck on a pill. But you had to write down your notes. I got confirmation from poison center and you know with such and such a date. And can you speak to any other chemists? Is that that's the pro protocol? That was what we were told. You know, I told them uh, how to do it. You know, you need, you know, a printout. And I'm sure that's you know, if, when I looked, you know, and I watched them working. You know, I'm telling you, Sonia was meticulous. That's why it was industry went down. I go, oh Jesus, mm -hmm. couldn't believe it. Did Sonia, if you know, did she ever contact anybody outside the laboratory for advice? On how to classify drugs? No. No. <laughs> That's why they're asking. She couldn't find it online with the MGL. You did. Okay. And the MGL doesn't always says different things. It doesn't exactly have the chemical name all the time. Pathogen, for example, Demerol. You know, that's you know, Demerol. It's in pathogen. Nobody subscribes Demerol as pathogen. So, you know, you have to look it up. Okay. It's, in, it's in a book, but. You know, some of those I remembered, so I used to. And that's so good now. Hey, what kind of drug is this? I don't know. What does it look like? <laughs> so, like, they're, they're asking about this because they found an email exchange between Farrick and Dukin where they're, they're trying to figure out how to classify this. And they correspond saying, like, haha, it's funny that. Massachusetts legislature, you know, hasn't caught up with the feds, but we're still calling it a class E. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly, you're exactly right. And that's when they, uh, I call that conspiring to give false testimony, right? Because they, they were emailing and saying, I know we have trials on the same day and there's class E drugs. They're both BZP. Um, what are you guys calling it? So we can make sure to call it the same thing. <laughs> right. So that we're not caught lying on the stand. And they're like, right. yeah, and I, that, that's not illegal in mass. Yeah, I know. Right. And I, I know I've said this before, but that thwarts uh, the both motives that have been constructed so far. So that's an example of Annie Dukin not rushing, in fact, taking extra time to send an email. Uh, and that's an example of Sonia Farag not doing something to get high. And so one would have to wonder why those two were comfortable with something that's not class E being class E. 
And the OIG found that there were, in fact, emails that went up to uh, Jul- Julianne Nassif's level and, and, and no investigation of why the lab knew that BZP was not Class E, but nevertheless continued to generate uh, drug certifications saying it was and, and presumably causing uh, more than 100 uh, defendants to take uh, uh, prison time or plea deals uh, based on that uh, uh, false assertion. Right. And uh, there's, there's a state police justification that uh, we can do a whole, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now, but we can, I, I will definitely go down it in another episode where we do all a class E episode because uh, they were, they knew all that this was going on and it was the state police. It was the, uh, it was the Hinton and Amherst labs were all doing this in unison saying that class E drugs were BZP and these club drugs when they really weren't, they weren't actually even illegal. It, uh, in by massive, they were illegal federally, but they weren't illegal uh, in the state. And the attorney general's office did a investigation on it. Everyone, like, there's there's a ton of evidence saying that they know that this was wrong, and it just didn't matter. No one stopped them from testifying that way for whatever reason. All right, so they they end on this. So uh, th- this is almost over. So next one, Randy. There's two more clips. All right, here we go. Was there, did you ever yourself call or speak to anybody at the Hinton Laboratory about classy drugs and how they, sh- how they should be identified or things that you saw that you just had absolutely no idea what it was? Did you reach out to them at any time? I, I can't say that I did. Sorry. <laughs> that was not a phone call. What kind of was that? <laughs> Uh, no, I I worked at a hidden lab for a while. How long did you work at the hidden lab? Six months. I worked at the alcohol lab for a while, and they put me in a drug lab, and I worked there. Then I transferred back out. Filed a grievance against the Ralston area, and huh? he asked me for a couple of promotions, and I filed a grievance. They wanted me to move me down to Boston, but when they started hiring chemists back in Amherst, I went to the union and said, hey, they should be back out. So, did you commute when you were in first? Ah, sometimes. Sometimes I stared with a lots of the guy. I was thinking of Paul Savizio. He's the guy who came down and we made heroin with him one time. He worked in the environmental lab. He worked in the drug lab for years too. Hey. Who showed you how to make the heroin? Did anybody or just did something as a chemist you knew? How to do? Well, DEA man, I told you they I went to school. They had it. Told you how to make it. That's that's how you back your standards. This is back in the sixties. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the, the, the DEA manual, like the DEA school that I know your chemist went to, yep. they showed them how to manufacture. Yes, there, right. They showed showed them how to make crack. That was one of the things she came back and told me. They did. Told her. That was good to know. Who did? DEA. Oh, this, uh, Sonia came back and, and they told me. Yeah, they, that was one of the classes she had. I forget what Becky said she had. It might have been the same thing. Hey, these were trusted people. I mean, hey, I had no doubt in my mind that she was fine. I, Hey, it happens in law enforcement. It happens in lawyers, too. Come on. Okay. Wait, I'm trying to take a break for a couple minutes. Oh, no. Tell me something. I love it. I love it. What happens to lawyers making crack? Was that what was he saying there? But he said, that's what I referred to earlier. So he discloses that 
Eric was taught how to make crack when she went to the DEA training. And that's what I was mentioning. Like shortly after that, she spiraled out of control. I wonder if there's a connection there. Right. Uh, Maybe. Maybe the DEA was behind a lot of them. <laughs> Just show, I mean, they showed Hanson how to do it. And uh, what he was referring to, like, he was fooled by, by Sonia is what he was saying, Ilias. And it says it happens in law enforcement that they're fooled. Oh, okay. Like criminals. Right. And it happens to lawyers. But it, I'd like to see the syllabus. What's that? I'd like to see the, I'd like to see the DEA uh, class syllabus and where it says advanced crack. <laughs> <laughs> But also, I love the bit where he's like, who did I used to stay with in Boston? Oh, yeah, that one guy I made heroin for. That's my favorite, Paul. Me and Paul made heroin with Paul once. Oh, he was a good time. (laughs) It was great. Okay, last one. This is three minutes long. Okay. Uh, Here we go. The way you describe the standards. Mm -hmm. How you made the secondary standards. Yep. That is the only way that you made secondary standards. Yes. Did you ever pinch or take a quantity out of a sample that came in uh, for testing? No. You never did that? No. No. Um, Did you have a conversation at all with uh, Sharon Saylor? Yeah, all the time. Did you discuss this sort of thing, the oh, standards. She, yeah, she knows how I made the standards. Yeah, I told her. I mean, I think everybody's aware of it. We did it for years. Did she explained to you how she described it to to uh, us? No. Um, is there anything uh, that you surprised we're not asking you that you thought we were going to ask you today? No, it was basically the same thing they covered in the uh, hearing I went to that Luke Ryan was the attorney. He was asked most of the same questions. Answered the best I could. Okay. Memory's not all that great anymore, but. Right. What you described to us, if you were to uh, be under oath, mm-hmm. it would not no. contradict. No, that's the way I did it. I never never took anything other than like from quanting or from uh, IRs. It's the only time that it was just for a open heroin. And to your belief, how you made standards is is a industry accepted practice accepted for years. For practice. Secondary standards. I mean, it was until recently they came to and said no more. Well, we didn't get the you know, the, the wisdom of all these uh, swig rules and stuff because they wouldn't spend the money. And if I was to ask a state police chemist mm-hmm. today, yeah. Um, would that chemist tell me uh, anything different? Would they say that he's gotten that's that way off base? No, they don't. They haven't since I left. But they were when I was there. They were taking marijuana from their sale from uh, a recent bus and using it for their standards. That was. Do you was think protocol. Do you think it's only marijuana that they did, or did all oh, prior years before? I, I knew Ken Gagnon. That was that was just a standard procedure. State police. When, I, when he, he took over, he told me, no more. It's, you know, order everything. Order everything. Yeah. <laughs> that was the uh, stand procedure for years. And that cost money to order. Yeah. I mean, under public health, we could have done it very easily. But, you know, we, you know, limited budget. It wasn't, you know, we went to priority we were supposed to be at. 
it would have been a lot simpler to order this stuff and a lot more costly too. So. It's interesting that this like was if he's if what he's saying is true and this was the standard way of doing things for years and years and years. Yes. Right. It's a problem. <laughs> Major <laughs> issue. You think? You think? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to send you guys something in just a second, but um, there's this whole issue that Caldwell seems to be interested in and whether or not they were quote unquote pinching instead of, taking from sample in any other uh, manner. And uh, this is a powder sheet from the Hinton Drug Lab Fall River sample case where they very clearly uh, were just pinching, reading straight from it. It just says, uh, I can't tell if that's two something. I can't tell the rest of the numbers, but um, some odd grams withdrawn from secondary standard and then the initials of the people who, who did it. So, um, you know, to the extent that Caldwell was worried about this and Hanchett said, you know, I wasn't doing it when I sent him these documents that showed the Hinton lab was, was doing the thing that he was worried about. I would have hoped that this resulted in additional investigation, but that never happened. Right. Did he, did Caldwell like express surprise at all? Well, yeah, yeah, well, I, as I said earlier, he was more like, this was not my problem. My job was to look at the Amherst lab. And but, you know, isn't, this, isn't this a red herring, the, the exact method by which you, I mean, either way you're pinching, let's be honest, either way you're diverting something to use in an impermissible way or an unscientific way, and the origin of it was street drugs. Right. And, and, and there's an assumption of purity there and reliability uh, underpinning uh, any, any method. So whether you're actually, I mean, I, I, I think of pinching as in the movies when they take their knife and they stick it through the plastic bag yep. and they look at it and mm, that's good. Um, why is that any different than, than taking it out of the IR machine? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't see the difference. If they were just going to throw that out anyways, and it didn't have to do with the evidence submission, I'm thinking. I mean, I, like in the weights, maybe. Like, what, right. what else could it possibly? It's like when, it's like if someone eats out of a trash bin, but they say that it was on top. Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> like the George Costanza defense, the eclair. It was. It was. It was still in the wrapper, so it's okay. <laughs> Who's on the top? But yeah, you're right, Elias. This is this is he keeps harping on it, but it is hair splitting and it's nonsense because it's just their kind of. I, I think it's their get out of jail free card for however they want to make it. But to me, it it just means nothing. That what's more important is that they were making these standards and that they were, I mean, making them from essentially street drugs, whether it was trash or whether it was from the sample, is is irrelevant to me. They were still what's that? And without protocols, and people yep. were doing completely differently, it seems like. Yeah. And, you know, just the lack of control in the lab. Um, anyway, so, uh, Randy, did you have to run? Uh, I do have to run. 
Okay, so we will we'll wrap it up here. We have more on Class E. We'll start uh, that one, and the in the next we'll finish up Hanchett's interview. There's still eight minutes left, believe it or not, and then we'll go into Annie Dukin's interview, which uh, we'll we'll have that email exchange with Sonia. We'll read directly from that, and we'll uh, hear what Annie Dukin has to say about uh, all of this. So that will be in the next uh, episode of Rig. Thank you very much for listening. Anyone uh, anyone have any last thoughts? Just one real quick, he, yep. they couldn't get the money for Swig Drug. I just want to emphasize, Swig Drug, there are free recommendations that uh, you can find on the internet. So it's just like baseline minimum. So like, you know, I, it, it's not the $30,000 that they needed to get accredited. It was, it was just recommendations that, for instance, you have written protocols. Right. You, you know how much it costs to write a protocol? Zero dollars. It costs nothing. Like anyone in the lab can write a protocol if they know what they're doing. Well, specifically, that's what Annie Dukin's job was after she got caught stealing evidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Made her write the protocols for stealing evidence. punishment was to write protocols where none existed. Yep. Anyway. Anyway. All right, guys. Thank you. Is right. there anything you're surprised I didn't ask you? <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. All right. I'll uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.